Hello and welcome to another episode of Elixir Talk, your favorite Elixir podcast, brought to you by me and my British friend Chris Bell. My name is Desmond Bowie. Uh, welcome everyone. Hi, Chris. Hi, Desmond. How are you doing? Good. 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 Are you in full conference prep mode? If by full conference prep you mean freaking out, then yes. Well, that's usually how it goes, right? So. Uh, yeah. I mean, freaking out. Like, there's just a lot to do and. A lot of things to check off like it's fine this is the fun part really because you know planning a conference well you know is there's some work up top to like reserve the venue and get sponsors on board and everything and then there's nothing for a while and then the last two weeks are just book the food get the hotel accommodations Yeah, yeah exactly well i'm really excited about it so i'll be there on saturday and i cannot wait so Cool. This podcast is going to come out after the conference. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. So when you're listening to this, well, we'll tell you all about how it went in the next episode. You'll have missed Chris. But um, no, we're looking forward to having you out. Yeah. And if you're going to be there, or if you were there, I should say, uh, time traveling self, uh, (laughs) I hope you enjoyed it. So there you go. (laughs) I feel like there's like an obligatory Star Trek time travel reference that we could insert into here, but we should move on. Hmm. You know. Okay, I thought of the one where they go back to old San Francisco and then they have to deal with Mark Twain. Mm, Data's yeah. head gets buried. Great yeah, episode. Yeah, that was a good one. Mm-hmm. And then Guinan shows up for reasons they don't explain. That's right. 100%. Yeah, that, that was weird. So, uh, so, we've got an exciting episode today. We do. We are joined by a very special guest, Devin Estes. Devin is the senior engineer at Orchard Systems. He's one of the maintainers of the Benchy benchmarking library uh he works on several other open or several other open source projects in the elixir community you may have seen him around and uh yeah coming to us all the way from berlin germany hello devin howdy guten abend as they say here Uh, i was going to ask how good your german was honestly (laughs) i so i haven't spoken to you in person before and i was thinking oh he's going to be german it's going to be cool and then no so a complete disappointment you know i'm sorry i'm such a letdown no i'm american uh i grew up outside new york uh but we've lived in germany for four years now so here in berlin for four and be here for at least a little while longer what's the um elixir community like out there it's really great berlin's one of the good european elixir cities i think we manage to have a good meetup here every month with good speakers a good head head count every month uh, there are uh-huh. quite a few um, companies using Elixir in production. It seems like a lot of the, um, uh, when I see a lot of the European hiring, it's either London, Berlin, or various places in Sweden. Um, but it, it's quite a bit of London and Berlin. I'd say Berlin is one of the top European Elixir cities in terms of demand for Elixir developers. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a massively growing tech city in general, but the Elixir community here is very, very good. There's quite a few great developers here and uh, a couple companies that are um, using it, th- that are big, that are using it in production and um, some other ones that are playing around, but uh, quite a few are, are really putting their, uh, their weight behind Elixir now. Uh, so it's, it's good to see. And are you using Elixir in production? I am. Uh, so for a long time, I was a freelancer and I've been using uh, basically mostly Elixir since 2017 and then only Elixir since uh, like the beginning of 2018. And the company I work for now, um, 
I am an Elixir developer full-time. Uh, there are two applications that I work on. One is a, a, a GraphQL API, and then the other application is actually kind of an embedded application because the company makes uh, hardware, and um, mm -hmm. this hardware needs to work when it does not have an internet connection. So it's a perfect uh, use case for uh, an Elixir application because it's also hardware that uh, needs to basically always be working even if the internet isn't working and needs to like do transactions and take people's money and if the software crashes they can't take people's money and that would make a client really unhappy <laughs> so that's the, a uh, yeah, yeah the uh the uh availability and um uh, resiliency guarantees are a huge benefit to having elixir on the devices there which is really nice so you're using Nerves for that? No. Uh, so the, they ship a full OS uh, to basically do these point-of-sale systems for retail. So uh, they design, like they have a couple of operating system engineers that design this uh, operating system that's sort of a, a based off of Gen 2 Linux. And then uh, on that, basically, this uh, Elixir application is the main back end. And then there's a touchscreen front end, or actually a couple different touchscreen front ends. Uh, depending on the type of device, because there are several different types of devices. One is, you know, they have these like touch screens that go in, in kitchens of restaurants now that show them what they need to cook instead of actual like sheets of paper like in the old days. So mm -hmm. there are a bunch of different types of devices and um, uh, they all basically work with this Elixir backend to make sure everything works. And, uh, you know, if the internet gets a little flaky that everybody still gets their food on time. So, uh <laughs> But yeah, those are the two main applications that I do. Uh, the, frankly, it's the first uh, project, Elixir project I've done where it actually needed Elixir. Most of the other stuff that I've done with Elixir is just because I prefer it. But, you know, there mm -hmm. were standard web applications that you could have written in any any language. But this is the first one where we we legitimately needed for the API the, the high throughput availability uh, capability because it's dealing on the orders of, you know, thousands of requests per second uh, so they need the throughput uh, and then on the the devices themselves they really need the uh, the fault tolerance to make sure nothing crashes because that would be bad so so yeah it's a it, this is a great fit for elixir how did, how did you get into elixir in the first place so um, before we moved to germany uh, that was in 2014 we moved here um, I would do the whole like learn a new programming language every year thing. Um, and then in 2015 was when I started like poking at Elixir because it had just sort of hit 1.0, I think, or it was close, or maybe it had just hit 1.0. Um, and um, I picked it because I had never done a functional language, and functional languages seemed kind of cool. and. Uh, it was between Elixir and Clojure, and I just happened to pick Elixir because I knew Jose, and uh, you know a lot of people were talking about it. So I picked Elixir, um, and I really fell in love with it. Uh, I mean, it took a little while for me to get to a point where I could be using it. I mean, because when you're just sort of playing on the side, it's one thing, but when you uh, actually have the time to do serious projects in it, <clears throat> that really helps the learning. So. I didn't start doing Elixir in in earnest until you know 2016 ish, and then late 2016 is when I had my first uh, Elixir client, um, and I started getting a lot more active in Elixir open source in 2016 as well. 
And then I've been doing mostly Elixir since uh, like 2017-ish. So yeah, it was pretty much luck. Like uh, <laughs> I feel like I got really lucky. I don't, I don't know what my life would be like had I chosen closure four years ago, but... Terrible. <laughs> it would have been a wreck. We'd be shoveling you out of the gutter right now. That's so cool. Yeah. I, I, do, are you coming from a Ruby Rails background then? Or? So my first, uh, I started programming when I was a kid. Um, my, my dad had an internet company back in the early 90s, like in the first dot-com boom. And he taught me to, to program and, you know, wanted free labor. So <laughs> uh, he taught me to write some code. Um, and then like any reasonable teenager um, where my parents are pushing me towards a, a sensible, smart career and wanted me to go study that in college, I decided I was going to go sing opera. Uh, so I took a 10-year break to be an opera singer uh, and did that wow. for a while and then came back to programming. And when I came back to programming, my first sort of modern language was Python, actually. Um, and I did Python for a while and then Ruby and and rails um and then a little go and then a little javascript and then uh elixir so i've i've played around with a lot of things mostly python ruby and now elixir though awesome so yeah do you prefer programming to singing or Still singing <laughs> sometimes. Uh, my youngest son likes when I sing. My oldest doesn't, uh, but my 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 youngest does. Uh, but not not for anything other than the enjoyment of it. Uh, I mean, I I got to a point where I mean, I have a master's degree from a very fancy conservatory in New York. Um, and when I got there, that was the first time that I wasn't like the best in my peer group at it. It's sort of like going from like college football to pro football at that level. And um, uh, when I got to that point, I was like, I, I could have had a career, I could have been fine, but it wasn't as enjoyable when you're like the backup place kicker, you know, like <laughs> right, right. It, it's a lot more enjoyable when you're the star quarterback, you know? So um, I, I learned yeah. I learned that being good at what I do was really important to me. And so I went back to that other thing that I was really good at when I was a kid and it turned out that I still really liked doing it. And um, it, it's also a much safer uh, uh, <laughs> job uh, career. I mean, given my wife is a singer as well and far better than I ever was. And that's why we're here in Berlin, actually. But um, so we still have a, a lot of music in, in the family and a lot going on on that front. But it, for me, I'm, I'm happy to just appreciate the music again. It's actually kind of nice. Do you ever sing songs about Elixir? Never once. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could have you uh, at MPEX in NYC because we have a pianist and we've always thought about like maybe we could have a singer with them, you know, so. Funny story. I've actually, I have performed in that club. Oh, you have? Oh, no Subculture? Way. I have performed at Subculture once. Oh, awesome. Like right when they first opened, um, I knew the guys there and the guys at Le Poisson Rouge, which is another sort of similar club in downtown. Yeah, uh-huh. Um, the, one of the guys at Le Poisson Rouge I went to Manhattan school with, uh, that, that fancy conservatory, because he was a cellist there. But um, yeah, uh, I don't think I will take you up on that, because it's been like uh, <laughs> what it? almost so 10 years now since I've done a professional gig. But uh, hmm. uh, I do hope to go to MPEX soon. I was really bummed I couldn't go last year, but 
Uh, you should, uh, yeah, you should totally try and come. Uh, we're having it again in May, so we'll be we'll be doing it. I will not be able to make it this year, unfortunately. Again, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, sometime soon. Yeah. You know, when you have little kids, it, it makes it a little tricky sometimes. That's the thing. It's also quite a long way to go with small kids if you bring them as well. So kind of makes sense. I mean, I would love to go back because it's been I haven't been to New York in five years at this point, but like. I would love to go back. I have so many, so many friends there, and I've heard that MPEX is a really awesome conference. When I watched the the videos from last year, I was so bummed that I couldn't go, even though I was supposed to. But uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, that, uh, the Elixir community here is uh, is doing pretty well. Like a lot more companies since uh, I don't know, Desmond. We've been doing this what three three years now Four doing years. the Elixir, yeah. And I think when we started, there was a handful of companies. It feels like there's more and more every week. So mm-hmm. it's, it's cool to see. So, Devin, tell us about um, Benchy. Well, Benchy is, Benchy is the world's greatest Elixir and Erlang benchmarking library. I think that, that oh, settles cool. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, Benchy was started by a friend of mine here in Berlin, um, actually, uh, Tobias Pfeiffer. Um, and Toby is... Uh, an awesome sort of, I would say, pillar of the, the Ruby community here that he's been involved in for a really long time. He, he runs the Ruby meetup here, but he's also been doing a lot of Elixir in the last few years. And I knew Toby from, from that community. And then um, we both sort of uh, got interested at Elixir around the same time. And he had started Benchy. And then I use it pretty heavily just because I like measuring things. And I, I like benchmarking because it's like, I feel like it's the closest thing that we have to truth in programming. Like it's the only fact that we have is is like I have measured this and this thing A is faster than thing B or thing A uses more memory than thing B. Uh, everything else we're just sort of guessing at. So I really like benchmarking and profiling because of that. And um, I, I used it really heavily and then I decided I should probably like actually help Toby a little bit because he, he'd been spending all of this time making this tool that I was getting all the benefit out of. Uh, so I started helping him with it, and then uh, he he uh, gave me a commit bit, and we've been working on it since, and we're getting really close to 1.0. I just today actually did what we're hoping will be the last uh, last necessary change before we can push out a, like a 0.99 version with all the deprecations and a release candidate, and then uh, we just need to update the formatters a little bit, but we're hopefully getting really close to 1.0, which means we are... V- pretty sure that we shouldn't need any other breaking changes to the API. There will be additional features coming soon, but we're, we're at a point where we think the API is is not going to change. There shouldn't be any more breaking changes that we can see coming. Um, but we're really happy with the features that we have. I mean, you can do anything uh, for runtime. You can do anything you can dream of. You get great runtime measurements. We have a lot of good formatters, so you can make really pretty graphs if you would like to do so. And uh, we also recently added a uh, memory measurement in there, which was really hard, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> for a lot of reasons, but we got it eventually, finally, uh, with a lot of help from a lot of other people that, that help us. Uh, Michal Moskawa was a huge, huge help, actually. He was the one that sort of uh, cracked that, that nut at the end uh, and came up with like the, the missing piece, as it were. Um, 
And uh, now we have a really great uh, implementation for that. And then there are going to be some additional things that are going to come after 1.0. So there's going to be some more memory measurements because right now the benchmarking is just for the total memory allocated over the course of a function within a single process. Uh, but we also want to look at like the maximum process heap size during the course of a function, any retained memory, stuff like that, just to give more measurements because stuff like the max process heap size and the retained memory are actually probably more... Uh, important for people working in low memory environments, people like writing nerves applications, putting uh, putting uh, embedded Elixir on really, really tiny microcontrollers, stuff like that. So we want to make it great for them. Uh, and uh, uh, another thing that I'm really looking forward to is we want to do reduction counting as well so that you can do proper performance testing because I think that's that's something that is really unique to the Beam as a platform is that we have we have that and we can not have to rely on wall clock time to do performance testing. Sorry, is there a concept of like, so the process is going to run some number of reductions. Do you take into account uh, being swapped off the CPU and going back into the run queue? So we just count the number of reductions that a function needs to execute. So you can trace the number of uh, reductions for a given process. Uh, that process uh -huh. traces its own, uh, like you can get trace um, information about the number of uh, reductions run from when you set the trace flag on a process to when, well, whenever you want to stop getting that information. So uh, we can do that within a single process very easily. So as long as the function that you are uh, benchmarking is within a single process, we can tell you exactly how many reductions that function needs to execute, regardless of whatever else is going on in any other processes. So assuming, you know, in a perfect world, in, in like a normal environment, uh, if you were to only have that function running uh, nothing else going on, nothing else going into the internal scheduler, nothing else in the run queue. It would be, this is how many reductions this function takes every time uh, mm. so that you can get a, a consistent uh, measurement there. And it's, it's going to be a really, uh, really great addition, I think, to the, to the library. But that's all how coming after 1.0. Oh, sorry. Um, how easy was adding a lot of this introspection back into uh, like counting reductions and then also like track? You, you mentioned like tracking memory was really difficult. Can you give a bit of insight into um, how it works under the hood and how that introspection happens? So the memory was difficult, I think, mainly because of the way I was coming at it. So um, originally, I thought like, well, it'll be easy to get memory measurement. You just turn off the garbage collector, you take a little snapshot before you run your function, run your function, and then however much memory is on the heap after your function is done, that's your memory usage. But uh, that doesn't work because... <laughs> Uh, the beam would would break pretty bad if you turned off the garbage collection. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that at the time, um, but yeah, that's you. You can't turn off the garbage collection for that reason. The beam cannot run without garbage collection. Um, so then I, I played around with a bunch of other stuff, um, and but the whole time I was coming at it, I was trying to get garbage collection out of the way. I was playing around with stuff like trying to uh, spawn a process with spawn opt to set the minimum heap size large enough so that the function wouldn't trigger a garbage collection run because then, you know, garbage collection won't get in the way, we can get our measurement really easy. But if you do that with anything bigger than like a pretty small function, you're gonna crash the VM because you're gonna try and allocate more memory than is actually physically on the machine that you're benchmarking on. Um, and also it had this weird catch 22 where like you would need to spawn a process that had enough memory to not trigger garbage collection. So you would need to know how much memory your function used before you measured how much memory your function used. 
so that wouldn't work. Um, but then I, I said Mihao uh, was the one that uh, gave us this idea to use the Erlang trace three function. So um, that's a function that was added in OTP 18 and that allows you to set a trace flag on a process or a port or all processes or all ports. It's actually a really great, flexible, wonderful tool actually. Um, and we use that to set a trace flag on the a process and that process's job is just to execute the function that we're benchmarking and then pretty much what happens is anytime garbage collection runs in that process, we have another process listening for those tracer messages and it uh, keeps a running total of all of the memory that's been garbage, collection, garbage collected during the execution of the function that we're benchmarking. And uh, basically we measure it that way. So we work with the garbage collector and uh, whenever garbage mm. collection happens, that tells us how much memory was garbage collected away. And then we add that to a running total. Um, so the actual implementation is, is very simple. It's, it's like 60 lines of code max. Um, for for the memory measurement, it's just the the way of thinking about it that I was, um, I mean, a I didn't know that function existed, that uh, Erlang trace three function, um, because I just don't mess around with stuff like that usually. I mean, the the reason that Mihao does is because like he does a lot of performance tuning like on the VM itself, so like that's his uh, his domain, and and we're lucky that he just happened to know that that thing existed because the, the beam standard library is huge. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, yeah, the, the implementation is easy. That Erlang trace three function gives you everything. And that's what's going to give us reductions that can give you all kinds of information. Um, it, it, that's built into the observer as well. So you can get all of that tracing information into the, in the observer as long as you're running on OTP 18 or, or higher, which I'm assuming at this point probably most people are. That's what four years ago now that was released. So, um, so yeah, it's it's all thanks to that function, um, and it's it's really quite simple. Uh, the, the The implementation is really easy. If you want to take a peek on Benchy, uh, it's each sort of measurer or, or data collector has its own module. So uh, for measuring runtime, for measuring memory usage, eventually when we add reduction counting, that'll get its own thing as well. Because um, we can't measure runtime and measuring measurement uh, memory usage at the same time. We have to measure them separately because measuring the memory usage interferes with measuring runtime and measuring runtime interferes with measuring memory usage. So uh, we have to measure them separately and it'll be the same with reduction counting. We have to measure it separately. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a, I think a really nice piece of uh, code to look at if you wanna see a little bit more of what OTP is doing because it's a pretty OTP heavy uh, chunk of Benchy because we have three processes going on and passing messages between each other. So I think if, if you're you're newer to the OTP world, that might be a good thing to take a peek at. Um, what happens if you uh, if your code drops into a NIF when you're trying to benchmark it? How does it handle? <laughs> it, nothing. Yeah. So that's there are limitations. NIFs are a total black hole. We get nothing on that. Okay. Um, it's all within a process. So it, if it's not in a process, we don't capture it. We would love to eventually, especially for memory usage, expand what we have, because right now it's just for a single process. Eventually we're going to expand it so that you can register additional processes to monitor um, so that you can keep track of saying, you know, during the course of this function execution, keep track of um, these four processes and consider all of those to be the, so the total memory used by that function stuff like that. Or there's also a setting on Erlang trace three where you can set a flag on um, 
any function spawned after or any process is spawned after the flag is set. So we can use that too. Uh, there are things that we're, we're looking forward to adding like that, uh, especially because we want to help uh, the Ecto folks because their stuff is, uh, they need to register that, that second process to um, accurately measure the memory usage for Ecto because it, it does bounce around between a couple processes. So um, they, we're gonna get there, but right now it's just within a single process. If it's in an if, we got nothing. If you're using a port outside that port, we got nothing. Uh, and there's not really much you can do with that. Sure. So are you working on this um, in your spare time or is this something that you're doing at work as well? Spare time? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good uh, good change of pace to have, you know, something. If you have, like, one of those frustrating days at work sometimes where, like, you know, I, I had one yesterday for, like, an hour and a half. I was going nuts, but it was because I was using, like, ID instead of user ID out of a struct. For, like, an hour and a half, I was like, why is this not working? So it's nice to just, after those things, to take some time and be like, oh, I'm going to go and do something that isn't work for a little bit and play around. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm lucky enough to where I can work sort of whenever I want. So if I have a rough hour fighting a problem at work, I can just, like, switch over to something on Benchy and it'll be fine. No one's going to be like, you're supposed to be working right now. As long as I do my time, I put my hours in, they're happy. They don't care when the hours come. So... Uh, so it's nice to have that. And, uh, yeah, I, it's spare time. I have a, another side project too that I'm working on in my spare time that is, uh, just starting to get on the ground, off, off the ground and a few other open source projects as well. Uh, some of, I mean, one of which I was really proud about, but then it looks like it's probably going to get like thrown away because they're fixing it in Elixir core. So (laughs) What, what was that? So I needed a way to enforce uh, private modules. Oh, I saw that they were discussing it the other day, yeah. So I, I published a repo uh, a week before Jose put that up. So I like to think that I successfully nerd sniped him into reconsidering <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> it could well be, could well be. Well, like, how did, how did you implement it with some compile time checks or something? Or? No, it's a mixed mix task. So basically, oh, okay. you add it to CI. Uh, it's not uh, okay. compile time at all. Uh, you know, our, our use case was not dependent on runtime or compile time. It was just CI to make sure that like this one app is only interacting with this other app through this limited set of uh, an interface. Yeah, that makes um, sense. And it was all within an umbrella, so there was no way to restrict that. So we just needed right. to make sure that basically our database application, our web application, was only interacting with a certain allowed modules in the database application. Uh, mm-hmm. And I did that by basically copying and pasting a bunch of code out of the implementation for MixXref and then writing <laughs> writing a little bit on top of that. So XREF gave me most of what I needed with a lot of false positives, which I would rather have false positives instead of false negatives. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I just made the modifications I needed. Uh, I mean, it's up on Hex. It works. Uh, it's up on GitHub, too. It's called No Touching. Um, so a little arrested development joke there. Um, and, uh, I was really proud of it, but that's probably going to go away because they're actually just going to fix it in core, which is great. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of like the ideal scenario, I guess. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. that's very cool. Nice. And, um, I, did I see that you've had some commits to Elixir core as well? Yeah. Uh, I like to work on X unit, uh, testing is a thing that I like. Um, so I've, uh, I realized actually that I've, I'm in the top 10 contributors for 2017 and 18. So that's cool. 
Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I just usually whenever there's something like broken or I miss an X unit, I go and add it, and they have taken pretty much all of it except for like one thing. Um, but yeah, it's it's nice and and you know, whenever I want something, I would rather just make it so that everyone can do it instead of writing a shell script to do it for me. You know. So are you going to get your assertions into XUnit or is that going to stay a separate library? That's going to stay a separate library. There's no way they're going to put that in because they don't need that. A, they don't need it for Elixir Core, for like actually developing Elixir Core. And B, it's like because what that library is is basically a, a lot of application design uh, specific things. Like a lot of them are like common assertions that I would write for testing like controller responses, like uh, in uh, testing GraphQL API endpoints, just basically asserting that like the map I get out of there equals some other map, but that map is usually like a struct. So you can't necessarily compare, I mean, A, you should never compare structs for equality directly because that's just a bad idea. And then B, you know, comparing a map with the structs, you can't do because the struct is a map with an extra key. So like it, it was just always something that I was doing. And then I also uh, didn't love the uh, error messages that I would get sometimes. So basically assertions for is like my shortcut for a bunch of um, common assertions that I would write in applications with really, really good error messages. So like if you're comparing two maps for equality, in the diff at the bottom, it'll just show you what's different. It gets rid of all the stuff that's the same, and it just shows you the keys that are different. So if you have two huge maps that you're comparing for equality, you don't need to like scan through them on your machine and be like, what's different here? That's like, a, that is the worst, honestly, trying to debug it like that. Yeah, I'm uh, sure yeah. we've all been there. Yeah. yeah, so it just pulls out the keys that are different and shows you the diffs on just what's different, and it ignores all the stuff. I mean, it'll still show you the actual inputs, but in the diff on the bottom, it actually just shows you what's different. So... It's, it's, uh, it's, I think, right in that wheelhouse of what Jose and the core team want of people extending the language. Like, there's no way that's ever going to go into core, and I have no intention of it ever going into core. It's nothing that they need. But I think it is really, a, for me, it's a super helpful thing for making my tests nice uh, and for writing better tests, because I would frequently find that instead of people doing especially at the the outer levels of testing at that, like if you have an API uh, and you are testing large responses to that API in sort of like an integration level, um, people will test like the ID and that's it and not test the whole response because it's annoying. Whereas if you can say like, here's my expected map, here's the response, make sure mm-hmm. they're the same. If it's, you know, ignore these three keys or whatever, if that's fine, if you want to ignore those, but it's just really flexible and, um, and it gives you great error messages. As someone that does a lot of sort of TDD, um, and I rely pretty heavily on my tests, those error messages and nice concise diffs are really important to me. So that's why I wrote it, and hopefully folks will enjoy it. How would, uh, so it was something we were talking about actually just yesterday, it just sprung to my mind. Um, we were talking about snapshot testing for API responses. Are you saying uh, essentially like you take snapshots against production? Uh, snapshots of just a JSON response, save those locally, and then if your uh, if your test changes, then you're basically comparing against something that's saved from a previous response against that. So you're basically comparing something that was known against something that's running now and seeing if there's a difference between the two to catch 
changes in your API responses. I guess you can do it through testing two maps, right? But yeah, I mean that's just a general. That's just like a a, a way of generating fixtures. So like yeah, I, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I prefer to handwrite my fixtures rather than automate them because I'm usually if I'm handwriting my fixtures, that means that I am designing the API. I mm-hmm. like if you start with the test first, you're not going to be doing snapshot testing. You're going to be designing mm-hmm. those fixtures yourself. Um, if you don't have the luxury of uh, designing those, or if you have a large code base that is slightly under-tested, that's a great way to design fixtures. I mean, you can also just do like, you know, IO inspect response, copy paste, throw that in the file. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's a little bit of um, a, a slight... Um, convenience over that but there's always room for convenience and if it works well i just there have been times and coming from my my ruby uh background when i was doing ruby and people would use the vcr gem and like it just like never worked right and like yeah the response was always like did you delete all the cassettes and and build them from scratch it's i just i'd rather do it myself like i i've been traumatized by that so i'd rather write it myself and have a module with like all of my uh, all of my responses and just call a function. So I, I, I heard you mention a word that's been top of my mind recently. So GraphQL, talk to us about your implementation of GraphQL and how you feel about writing it. <laughs> it's awesome for the front end team. It is awesome for the third parties that are using our API. It puts more of the work back on the back end team, but I'm okay with that personally. Um, uh, I, it's just like my philosophy on, on design is like, I would rather have the complexity in an environment I control. So I would rather push a whole bunch of that complexity back onto the server rather than having it run in God knows how many clients in who knows how many places all over the world and like having to support all of those. I would rather have that complexity on my server that we know and that we can debug and like we can get all of the information from. So it is definitely more complex for the back end. There are some real benefits to it. Like I like having the type system there. You don't need to validate inputs because like the this type system does all that validation for you and you can do a lot with that, which is awesome. But um, especially around making it performant, it gets a little tricky. You definitely need something like data loader in there. Otherwise it's basically N plus one by design. Yeah. Um, because it's based around composition of small pieces. But when all of those small pieces are queries to the database, it is, you know, you're just, it's the definition of an N plus one. Like you, and it's a cascading N plus one. So uh, that's, you know, it's a thing. And it's also, frankly, um, maybe a little too easy to abuse, like to have clients that write, like, ungodly complex queries that that take way too long to run so to implement basically like a complexity checker in in the api it's another level of um um security that you normally don't need to do like normally you can rate limit an api like a a json api really easily you know how to rate limit that but when you have a, a graphql api you also need to rate limit based on complexity of the query because like if they send you a bunch of extremely complex queries, that is going to chew up your, your resources really easily. Now it's not so much of a problem with Elixir because it's not going to bottleneck the whole system, which is great. But uh, it's still a thing. It's like an extra thing that you need to do. 
but I, I generally think it is beneficial just because it aligns with my philosophy on keeping the complexity in a system that I own, that I can control. Like, I'm, I'm okay making that trade-off. So for me, I'm a, I'm a fan. I like keeping the front end simple. I mean, I don't deal with the front end normally anyway, but I like making the front end team happy and making the, the client, uh, the third parties that are using our API, making them happy. I mean, that's what it's about. I would rather have happy customers than, than have clean code, to be honest. So, Have you run into those performance issues uh, in production as well that you were talking about? Yeah. I mean, it's okay. really easy to forget to load something on data loader and then it becomes right. a path because like it will work just fine in your test. Your test will pass right. um, until you see something in your monitoring. This is like, oh, wow, we have a lot of queries taking over 300 milliseconds. Like what's going on there? So um, yeah, it's really easy to do. It's unfortunately easy to do, um, but it's uh, just a, a fundamental part of the design of, of the spec. Like it's it's n plus ones as a service basically, but like yeah. by design. And there are ways around it, but it's going to be like that no matter what. Mm. That's cool. It's it's really interesting to hear your perspective. Um, uh, I mean, it's something that I'm sure a lot of our listeners have been talking about. I think it's one of those things that's really hot at the moment. And a lot of people are kind of looking at, should they do a GraphQL API versus a REST API or something akin to what Desmond's doing, more like a RPC-based um, service? But yeah, it's it's an interesting topic of debate and certainly one that hasn't died out in 2019 yet. So uh, yeah, and it was going to keep going. <laughs> so yeah. And I don't think there's a right answer as well. It kind of depends on what you're doing, right? Like it's, uh, I think if you're if you're aggregating a, a ton of different services, GraphQL can be really good as well for that. But it's, are you doing it on a single service basically, like single API that's just backed by DB and okay. single API? We run a couple nodes in production because uh, we have pretty high throughput. Uh, it's run clustered on Kubernetes. So uh, nice. Yeah, I know that's that's a thing. So we we still got the Kubernetes. Yeah, I know. Still got the <laughs> Kubernetes. Uh, that was before my time. I'm not really an operations person. Like the extent of my operations is running, setting up an Erlang cluster. I'm, beyond that, I'm sort of lost. But uh, uh, but yeah, it runs clustered uh, on Kubernetes. But um, yeah, it's 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 a good old big big single service that just shifts a lot of data from point A to point B with a lot of different clients. So like we have. Uh, five internal clients and then a whole bunch of third parties that are using mm. the API as well. And uh, I will say that the third parties are very happy with it. Uh, so, uh, you know, happy customers is, is good for me. So, and, and I don't think there's a right and wrong. It's just like I say with most things in programming, it's just about what you like. It's personal preference. Like I say, it's, it fits my philosophy of what I like, but that doesn't mean that it's right. It's just what I like. The only things that are that are right or wrong are things you can measure, which is why I like benchmarking. <laughs> so <laughs> to bring it all back, I love that. It's like you're a pro, pro at doing this. So we appreciate it. Well, um, thank you so much for being here today and for chatting with us. Um, it's, it's super cool to see all of your projects and especially to hear a bit more about Benchy. Um, personally, that's not something that I've used yet, but. Um, definitely always have a use case of benchmarking <laughs> so um, i'd love to see um, more things coming out there and hopefully when you hit 1.0 that sounds awesome so yeah 
Um, where can everyone go to find uh, more of your projects and uh, hit you up on Twitter and where else? Yeah, so on Twitter, I am uh, Devon C. Estes. That's D-E-V-O-N-C-E-S-T-E-S. On GitHub, I'm just Devon Estes and devonestes.com. Um, but yeah, Twitter's probably the best way to get me. It's funny because in real life, you're also Devon Estes. It's <laughs> <laughs> very true. I haven't thought about that. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, we'll have to stay in touch and uh, keep up to date with what you're doing. So thank you so much for all your open source contributions as well. Um, you know, we, we somehow represent the community on this podcast and uh, just really appreciate that everything uh, that you're doing in the ecosystem. So thank you for that. My pleasure. And I actually have one more thing that's that's sort of related to open source. Is there's uh, I mentioned a, the side project I've been working on, and it's it's pretty much live at this point. So I think I mean I have users on it. People are paying to use it for for closed source stuff. But it's called Test Metrics. Uh, it's at testmetrics.app. You can check that out if you all want. Basically, the idea is like we have all this data about how our application is running, but we have no data about our tests, and we should start collecting data about our tests. It's kind of wild that we don't. So uh, it does that. It, I have uh, implement, uh, uh, clients for Elixir and Ruby at the moment. I'll do other languages too, but I'm really just focused on first first and foremost getting Elixir really, really good. Uh, and I just finished Umbrella app support for that as well. So basically every time you run your tests in CI, it takes some measurements and you can actually keep track of your tests and find the flaky tests, fix it, have a better test suite, make everybody a little happier. So uh, that's up, and if it's free for open source, and uh, if you have an open source project, you can go ahead and add it yourself and get started measuring, measuring your tests. Awesome. Well, that's we'll uh, link to that in the show notes, so you can check it out. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Devin, Devin for being on the, uh, on the show with us today. Really appreciate you being here, and hopefully we'll see you at a conference soon, maybe on this side of the Atlantic or on that one. Hopefully we can get to uh, ElixirConf or something over there at some point. So, yeah. yeah, thank you so much for having me. Always great to chat chat about Elixir stuff. Always, always. <laughs> okay, well, um, if you like this podcast, make sure you tell your friends and you can uh, rate or review us wherever you're getting your podcast right now, coming into your earbuds. And it, you can hit us up on Twitter, which is twitter.com slash elixirtalk. Or if you have a question you want us to answer, you can uh, get us on GitHub, which is github.com slash elixirtalk slash elixirtalk and just open up an issue right there. But as always, we appreciate your listens and uh, we'll see you next time. So keep, keep, keep elixiring. elixiring. Keep elixiring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs>